The Wilson Center Special Events Podcast is a compilation of previously recorded live events. It features concise briefings on big topics from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Wilson Center. I'm Mark Kennedy, Director of the WABA Institute for Strategic Competition, proud sponsor of this event, commemorating the approaching 20th anniversary of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC. This event is extra special for both Wilson Center CEO Ambassador Mark Green and I, as we were there at its birth, uh, voting to bring to life uh, into the service when we were in Congress. Ambassador Green served on the board of directors of the Millennium Challenge Corporation during both the Obama and the Trump administrations, and I sponsored an amendment with today's U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, to increase funding for the MCC. Ambassador Green gave me a hard time that we didn't get it passed, but we should have more funding for MCC. The innovative approach of the MCC increases the impact obtained for each dollar expended. It has had a profoundly positive impact on pushing poverty back. The MCC's rigorous process for picking countries targets developing nations that demonstrate positive performance in ruling justly, investing in their own people, and fostering economic freedom. Its process for picking projects directs investments towards poverty reduction through economic growth by targeting the principal binding constraints to growth in an economy. It seeks to unlock bottlenecks that constrain private investment and entrepreneurship. Our special guest today is MCC's CEO, Alice Albright. Ms. Albright has more than 30 years of international experience in private, nonprofit, and public sectors. She previously served as CEO of the Global Partnership for Education, as Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Export-Import Bank of the United States, as Chief Financial and Investment Officer for the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, and as a banker focusing on emerging markets, principally at J.P. Morgan. She received her MIA from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and her BA from Williams College. She is particularly well-suited for the data-driven approach of the MCC as a chartered financial analyst. It is notable, something that many of not, not few of us can say, that she had the U.S. Senate unanimously confirm her, which is a, a great accomplishment in today's world. Ms. Albright will be sharing her insights first on the MCC, then she will sit down for a dialogue with Ambassador Green. I give you Millennium Challenge Corporation CEO, Alice Albright. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Let me reorganize a little bit here and get this microphone in the right place. Uh, well, I'm just uh, absolutely delighted uh, to be here with all of you today. Uh, again, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Mark, and for your leadership of the Waba Institute. And thank you, Ambassador Green and the Wilson Center for hosting uh, this wonderful event. Ambassador, you've been such a close friend of MCC's and a thought partner since day one. I think, in fact, prior to day one, because you were very much involved in co-sponsoring our act. So in some ways, you are, well, you are one of our founding fathers. 
you then served as ambassador to Tanzania as MCC was embarking on a $700 million compact. And you later served on our board of directors, both as a private member and then following while you were the administrator of USAID. I think you might hold the record for the person who's been on the MCC board the longest. Uh, so needless to say, we're incredibly grateful for all of your contributions and looking forward to today and our conversation. So let me get started. Um, in 2002, when President Bush announced the creation of MCC, he stated that poverty is broad and seemingly inescapable. Half of the world's people still live on less than $2 a day, I'm quoting him, and for billions, and poverty is spreading and per capita income is falling. So that was a quote from President Bush when all of this was started. Now since then, the global development landscape has changed dramatically. Poverty and inequality had decreased from when he said that, but it's now been reversed due to COVID and Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine and many other factors. The international community had been coming together to provide unprecedented debt relief, but then, slowly but surely, we've seen debt burdens grow for various reasons. A slow-motion climate crisis once seemed very distant, but now is real and immediate. Economic shocks have increased in frequency as the world has become more globalized and very interdependent. And a third wave of democratization had raised hopes, but now authoritarianism is on the rise. Through all of this, though, MCC has remained true to its singular mission and model, which is maintaining a very long-term view focused on reducing poverty through economic growth. Over the last two decades, MCC has deployed over $15 billion in grant funding in 46 countries across six different continents, lifting 270 million people out of poverty in one way or another. But as the world has changed since MCC was founded, so too has MCC. We've doubled down on inclusive growth and gender equality. We've leaned into helping democracies deliver, but at the same time having made some tough choices when countries move in the wrong direction. We've recognized climate's economic effects and built in climate resilient infrastructure into how projects get designed and we've pursued systems change to strengthen all that we think about when we do economic resilience. But even as we look forward to MCC's future, MCC's founders, like Ambassador Green, were also very wise and at the beginning, very forward-looking. They provided MCC with a very solid foundation that thankfully remains very much intact. MCC's core principles of selective engagement, country ownership, mutual accountability for results, and radical transparency have delivered time and time again. But while we've reached what I would call the proof of concept stage on the bold experiment that is MCC, we also must continue to evolve based on all that we've learned and where we see the needs are. What have we learned and how have we evolved? For example, we've recognized that we could unlock new opportunities by pursuing regional approaches. Why is that? 
Economic growth and opportunity is not confined to within a border. Trade is by definition cross-border. So following new authority from Congress, we signed our first regional compact this past December between Benin and Niger, and it will improve trade, the trade corridor between Benin and Niger. Very excited about that. We have two other regional compacts that are in the works, but that was the first one. We've also learned that soft policy reforms must always complement hard infrastructure investments. Why is that? It's because creating the right enabling environment is vital. And when, on occasion, we have to pull back and reassess when required, we do that. We know that progress is long-term and not always linear. Our threshold program has shifted from focusing originally narrowly on improving the indicators in our scorecard, but it is now seeks to influence broad policy and make institutional reforms. And we now have the authority, just recently given to us, to do threshold programs after compacts for countries that had fallen out of eligibility but are now hoping to get back on the right track. We've also evolved how we operate. We have a wide range of partners and have learned through years about how to operate in different settings, everything from countries that we would consider emerging markets to post-conflict states. And we're starting to tailor the pace of program development to each country's circumstances. We have found that some partners can move a lot faster than others. For example, in Togo, where we currently have a threshold program and a strong relationship, we've specifically set out on a path to do that compact development much shorter. In other circumstances, a much more flexible approach is needed, such as in the Solomon Islands or Kiribati, where we are piloting new forms of, of how we implement our work. Our choice of sectors has evolved, but is in no means what I would call a random walk. Instead, the sectors that we work in reflect what countries find to be their most pressing challenges. Many of our early compacts were focused on agriculture. We then moved on to power, and now we are seeing more interest in climate and climate resilience, digital and urban-focused investments. Even in the face of constantly shifting country needs, though, MCC has remained agile and flexible enough to address each country's most urgent economic constraints. We've also contributed to the U.S. response to key geopolitical changes, including, for example, China's greater role in the international system and Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. Regarding development finance, MCC provides a positive alternative to China. Yes, China offers a wide range of options, but we've all seen the shortcomings there. We now have much better data on what Chinese development finance involves and a better understanding of the projects that they're supporting. I'm going to break it down right now into three buckets. One is grants, the second is concessional finance, the third is a non-concessional finance. Their grants are limited compared to those of traditional donors, and they often finance projects that are, on, on, that are, on the one hand, very visible, stadiums, presidential palaces, opera houses, but these don't necessarily contribute to economic growth. Their concessional lending does finance infrastructure, roads, rail, power, 
but it comes at a much higher cost. And finally, their non-concessional financing typically finances extractive industries like oil refineries and mines, the consequences of which you can see are clear. You've heard me mention the importance of MCC's work on policy and institutional reform and how that needs to complement our investments in infrastructure. While China's no-policy-strings-attached approach may seem attractive, especially where capital is scarce, there are long-term costs. In contrast, MCC uses grants to finance high-return infrastructure projects that addresses a country's most binding economic constraints. We do this on transparent terms, and we leave no debt behind. MCC's experience could also provide useful lessons for rebuilding Ukraine. We have a positive track record of working in difficult environments, and we've proven that we can deliver infrastructure in post-conflict settings. The U.S. government will soon need this type of capability in Ukraine as that country seeks to rebuild. Let me share an example of how this has worked in practice. As part of MCC's first investment with Georgia, which happened many years ago in MCC, the government of Georgia worked with MCC to rehabilitate critical infrastructure in neglected rural areas. This included, for example, a 200-kilometer uh, road to connect central Georgia to Armenia and Turkey and a north-south pipeline that was the sole gas transmission into Georgia. During the implementation of this program by the MCA Georgia, MCA being our entity that we set up, the country was invaded by Russia. Nonetheless, the MCC program continued, and we were able to finish construction on time. This also then allowed subsequent investments in education, which have concluded much more recently. MCC places a premium on what we call country ownership, and this runs right the way through from how we think about our approach, our analytical work, and to our operations. And this is very relevant for post-conflict settings. We regularly set up a dedicated entity, its generic name is the MCA, that allows us to deploy grant financing for critical infrastructure while at the same time protecting taxpayer dollars and ensuring adequate oversight. Now, I don't have time now to explain to you exactly how all of that works, but we have lots of charts, and you can come. We can set up a separate meeting, because it's very interesting and very relevant. So as we embark on our next chapter and confront our next big set of challenges, how do we continue to maximize MCC's impact? Let me start by telling you what we're not going to change. We will continue to work with only well-governed democracies. This is our North Star, and it has been a powerful, powerful incentive for countries that want to work with MCC. We will continue to focus on the most binding constraints to economic growth. We always listen to our country partners and use data and analytics to identify and prioritize the most pressing economic concerns. We'll continue to finance investments based on the best data and evidence that are available to us and design our programs such that the benefits outweigh the costs. We will continue to rely on our partners' knowledge and capacity to implement projects on time and within budget. 
As I've mentioned, we have a long track record of delivering large infrastructure projects that many people thought were impossible to do on time. Well, we do this by looking to our country partners to manage implementation, and that is a signature aspect of how MCC works. And finally, we'll continue to evaluate every single project and share those evaluation results with anybody that is interested in seeing them, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we have never wavered from our commitment to transparency, and you can find all of our evaluation reports on the website, and we've just recently set up a new evidence platform that enables you to slice and dice every report, every year, every sector, every country, um, and it's great. I've looked at it a lot. And uh, it's a wonderful way to get a total overview of what MCC does in a very transparent manner. So with those bedrock principles not going anywhere, how do we evolve into the next chapter of MCC? Let me talk through a bit the where and the what and the how of what we consider are considering as we are about to head into our 20th year, which will be more than just about a birthday cake, although there will be some birthday cake. First, the where. Given the changing nature of poverty and MCC's very strong value proposition, we must be able to be in a position to bring these tools to bear in more countries. That's why Congress has introduced the bipartisan and bicameral, bicameral MCC Candidate Country Reform Act. And we hope that you'll support it too and help us with this uh, as people consider it. But while we can go broader, we may also be able to go deeper through more regional compacts and possibly also through subsequent investments. The second piece is what I call the what. MCC has consistently taken a long view of economic development and worked collaboratively with countries to make investments now to achieve economic and inclusive growth in the future. So where will the market and our country partners lead us next? While we're going to continue to approach our systems, our, our work in a systems-based fashion and at scale and in a way that directly improves lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are going to be the areas that are important over the next 10 to 15 years? What can we do, for example, to think about resisting the next pandemic? Perhaps the subject is going to be clean energy that powers new hospitals in crowded cities, or broadband and digital skills for the education sector that allow students to learn from anywhere. With MCC's long perspective and comparative advantage in mind, what are the emerging sectors that we should be paying attention to and engaging on our partners? The third and final piece is what I call the how. That is, how do we refine and scale this model of effectiveness? We've reached a point with a growing number of partners where the compacts have been completed, but we know that there's more work left to do. So should we consider additional ways to go deeper? We work in sectors where the need often far exceeds MCC's limited resources. In fact, that's probably the case in almost every big compact that we're looking at right now. So should we explore other creative ways to catalyze additional capital to come in alongside of us? We also want to deliver results sooner, and find, but, but we often find ourselves wanting to seek additional flexibilities. 
So should we look at various mechanical changes that would help us expedite our work and expedite our impact? So those are just some of the questions that are floating around. I'm so glad that we have the Brain Trust here with us today and also online that are going to help us dig into some of these questions. So let me close by ending where I began. The world has changed dramatically since MCC's founding. In fact, I was over at American University a few weeks ago, and I was reminded of President Kennedy's commencement address 60 years ago when he encouraged AU students to experiment to meet the moment. JFK stressed the importance of practical and attainable actions, and not some magic formula, but those that evolve to meet the challenge of every new generation. So in short, development is a process, and it's not a destination. And as MCC approaches our 20th year, it is imperative that we not only recognize our accomplishments and the good work that we've done to date, but lean into the lessons that we've learned and push ourselves to ensure that we are maximizing the potential of this incredible model called MCC, including operating at scale, with speed, and with ambition to continue that we meet the moment. So thank you so much. It is a great honor to be here with all of you, and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Mark Kennedy for his introduction. Thank you to uh, the Wab Institute for sponsoring this. And welcome, Alice Albright. It's good to have you here. So as uh, a number of people have noted, MCC is approaching its 20th birthday. That ages me by quite a bit. Um, I remember when MCC was a toddler. <laughs> and uh, just like with toddlers uh, that we all know, it was a little unruly, and quite frankly, we weren't sure that the model was going to take. It was an experiment. It truly was pushing the boundaries. But take it has, and I would argue that no agency has done more to shape the way the world approaches development than MCC. Uh, Data-driven, partnership-centered, uh, we often talk about the MCC effect, the fact that the monies that are provided incentivize policy reforms in countries with whom we partner. But something that I think is underappreciated, the MCC experiment and the way that it is used data and the way that it is used, the indicators, has shaped every other agency in the world. Uh, as uh, the former head of USAID, I'm not sure that USAID would be as metrics-based and as outcome-driven as it is if not for the lessons that we learned from MCC. So just as MCC was an experiment back in the day when we were standing it up, it's always been an experiment. It's always been the think tank. It's always been the laboratory in which we test so many ideas. Uh, but I want to pick up on, on something that you, you were talking about, Alice. I think something that is underappreciated, and that is the MCAs that you talked about. So uh, I had the honor of being in Senegal right as a compact closed in Senegal. 
And I remember we had a meeting with uh, um, some of the government leaders and everyone, you know, we were moving on to our next meeting and we left the room and a lady pulled me back in and she said, uh, I just want you to know why the compact me meant a lot to us. She said, it's not the roads. We can build roads. Anybody can build roads. You proved to us it could be done on time, on budget, and transparently. And yes, we knew that intellectually, but we had never been able to prove the model. Now we have a generation of Senegalese who know how to do this. Talk about why that MCA is so important to the, MC, uh, to the MCC and the model that you have. Well, it's a great question, and I think you've, you've set it out. Um, you know, the, I've been at MCC for, you know, about a year and a half. And uh, so, it's, you know, I've learned many of the nooks and crannies, maybe not all of the nooks and crannies, but one of the aspects of it that I think is most profound is the MCA. Now, a lot of um, organizations consider sort of the concept of country ownership um, it's theoretical, it's aspirational, it's academic. For us, it's actually how we operate. And it starts with asking a country and working in various analytical ways, what is your biggest problem? And then fast forward a little bit, it winds up with an entity that is set up on a dedicated basis to a project that the country has chosen with a board and a staff that has been uh, chosen in close concert with what the government wants, under a set of rules that are transparent, um, obvious, clear to the marketplace. Uh, and again, I come back to the concept of dedicated to finishing what is at hand within five years. What happens if a country doesn't finish in five years? That part of the, um, the project has to be discontinued. And it's happened. It doesn't happen often, but it's happened. Now, we take our five-year clock uh, extremely seriously. Um, I think there were, during COVID, uh, five different examples where we sought a one-year reprieve because mm -hmm. of COVID, but sure. that was understandable, but the only uh, example of that. So it is, it's embedding an entity in a country to enable them to go get the job done. Mm -hmm. And the pride of ownership the, um, the sense of control over that, the fact that it's dedicated and transparent is, it stands out as a, it's a real standout, I'll say, relative to what you see in a lot of other ways that international development is done on the ground. So it's yeah. sort of the unsung hero of our model. It doesn't get talked about a lot, so I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, you talked a bit about uh, some of the new tools that MCC has. World has evolved, thankfully. MCC has evolved along the way. Talk a little bit more about why regional compacts are so important uh, to MCC and to the MCC mission. So an interesting statistic that uh, was talked about during the African Leaders Summit um, recently was the degree of trade just on the continent between the countries themselves. And it's, I think, in the, I think it's about 6%, if I'm remembering my statistics carefully. So it's low. And so you can just see that if countries are not able to sort of take advantage and build markets in trading with each other, it's a huge opportunity lost. So this was the main thinking behind setting up a regional capability for MCC. Now, we got the authority in 2018. Um, it is 
what I have called in the past a bit of a high wire act to actually make the regional compacts happen because not only does each country have to remain eligible, the projects themselves have to be uh, have to cross all of our uh, requirements. So it's hard to have happen. And one of our uh, our regional compacts that we were starting on involved um, the West African Power Pool and Cote d'Ivoire and Burkina Faso. So some months ago, uh, because of the coups in Burkina Faso, we had to step away from that. Um, but the logic is uh, helping regional trade. The way it works in practice is that we work with both countries together towards a common set of objectives. And that's what we're doing in Benin and Niger. Uh, we are continuing to work on the electricity uh, one in the Cote d'Ivoire, and we've just announced uh, just earlier this year another one with at the early stage with Senegal to try to look at regional opportunities there. As we look at our selection uh, processes going forward, we routinely look at where are there options where they could benefit as a region from greater trade and where the countries that are involved could also be eligible. So it's all about trade. Uh, and it also addresses the risk that we sometimes see with some of our partner countries are landlocked. Yes. Right? And so trade, uh, the, the trade opportunities are somewhat limited unless they can have access to the sea, which, of course, that regional compact, that the first regional compact really gets at that. Yes. Yeah, so that one is uh, just a little over $500 million. It is between uh, Benin Cotonou, the port of Cotonou, and Niamey, the capital of Niger. And we had worked on a big port investment in, uh, in Cotonou. So that was sort of the, in some ways, the starting of the story. But Niger is landlocked and faces a range of challenges. And so they wanted a much easier way to get their goods to the market through the port in Benin. So that's what this will do. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, why do you think the MCC model is particularly suited to infrastructure? Because that you began talking about infrastructure, and some of the most successful compacts seem to be infrastructure focused. What what about the model makes it particularly effective in that area? Uh, I think there's there's two things that really stand out. One is the fact that it's grant financed, and uh, increasingly grant financing for long term projects. Um, is hard and harder and harder to come by. So I think that is um, a characteristic of how we operate that is not to be overlooked. Um, I think it's absolutely essential. The other thing is that the money is long term. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we all know that doing infrastructure projects takes a while. Even in other places in the world, it takes a while. So the fact that our money um, has a once, you know, it's, once it's appropriated. We, you know, we can work with it, but then also once the project starts, there's a five-year uh, limitation on it. And that duration is a really good fit to then enable you to study what is the key constraint that a country faces that could be infrastructure, and then how do you design it, how do you get the studies done, and others, you, you have the time to get it right. Now, one thing we've learned is that uh, often, success in infrastructure investments has to bring with it policy changes around the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing, for example, an energy uh, program, you have to look at the regulatory environment around it. You know, what are the entities in the country that regulate energy? Are they sort of situated properly? What is the tariff structure? I mean, there's various questions like that. So, um, so I think that the way that we work, the type of money, the duration, 
the ability to do policy work and investment work. It's all a fit that I think is very well suited to that uh, type of work. So uh, infrastructure is all the rage these days. Everyone's talking about infrastructure and how we finance it and how we construct it and how important it is. Um, and you can't answer this, so I'll ask it and answer it for you. So um, despite all of that and how important infrastructure is and, and how successful MCC has been, your budgets have been largely flatlined. Um, what would you do if you had more money, perhaps deliver more infrastructure? Okay, that's, I think, enough said on that point. We can do more with more. There we go. Um, so you, you mentioned the Rish Menendez legislation, the MCC Candidate Country Reform Act. Uh, Rish is quoted as saying, it helps MCC to work with the right partners in the right places at the right time. So uh, two parts. Number one, um, what, perhaps you can give a few examples of the countries that become eligible that mm -hmm. perhaps previously, uh, financially uh, eligible that previously weren't, number one. Number two, um, in a time when politics seems to be uh, fractured and fragmented, the fact that you've got uh, the chairman and ranking member, bipartisan sponsorship of this. How important is that, and, and to what do you attribute that? So let me, let me start with your second question. Um, first, we are extremely lucky to have strong bipartisan support, both in the House and the Senate, and I attribute that to um, the foresight with how the agency was set up and its adherence to results, transparency, and all the disciplines um, that I spoke about earlier, um, and people like that. And so we cherish the fact that we have bipartisan support, and every time we think about should we do this or should we do that, we look at it through the lens of how are people going to react to it from a bipartisan perspective. So that will remain very important. Um, on the, the candidate legislation, let me just run through a bit of the specifics there. So the legislation itself uh, looks to readjust the number of countries that we could begin to look at. Uh, right now, we can work with 81 countries, and those are the low-income and lower-middle-income countries as classified by the World Bank. We are looking to add up to about 115 countries, um, which is sort of the bottom end of the upper-middle-income range by the World Bank. Um, and so that would be the first, sort of first step is increasing the number of countries up to about 115. Um, but the second step is absolutely vital, which is our scorecard. So of the additional countries, we estimate right now that about a third of them would pass the scorecard. The others would look at the scorecard to see when do they become eligible, but not all of those countries become eligible sort of immediately. Um, in terms of where that gives us additional uh, countries possibly to work with, there would be some in Central America, uh, some, again, scorecard dependent, uh, some in Eastern Europe, uh, one or two additional in, uh, in the Pacific. We're very interested in working in the Pacific. Right now we've got programs, we've got a big program going on in the Solomon Islands, and we're working on one possibly in Kiribati. Um, there would be one or two countries additional in Southern Africa, uh, Botswana and Namibia, for example. 
Um, so we could really see additional sort of MCC activity in a number of different regions, but I want to come back to the importance of the scorecard, because not every one of the countries that is would be eligible on a per capita income basis would qualify based on the scorecard, and that's what we'd really have but to look at. But at least they would be in the conversation and know that they need to think about what it is that they need to do in order to pass the scorecard. Exactly. And uh, one thing that uh, is really interesting is, to, is the conversations that we have with countries who are on the list but have not yet passed the scorecard. And boy, is that fascinating. And I have had conversations with countries who want to know why they aren't passing the scorecard. And then we pull out the scorecard, and I have my colleagues from that part of us uh, come with me, and we say, well, let's, let's talk about it. So there are countries, one being the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that have set up a whole team to try to pass the scorecard. So just think about the incentive-creating effect that the concept of the scorecard has created. And I would expect that if we were lucky enough to get this legislation passed, that that same type of effect would happen. So let me take that uh, one step further. Not only do, in my experience, they ask you tough questions about why they don't qualify, uh, they also say, why did our neighbor qualify? It's remarkable how competitive they are in that process, all to the good from, uh, I think, our perspective. Um, let me switch uh, topics, and you touched upon this a little bit. Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There's a long way to go in the brutal war, but it's also not too early to talk about the future. The war will end, uh, peacetime democracy will return, and a massive new project will begin. Ukraine whole, free, and a vibrant citizen in modern Europe. Uh, talk a little bit about how you think the MCC model, from uh, scorecards, obviously, to the MCAs, might be able to accelerate parts of, uh, A, the rebuilding of Ukraine, which will take a lot, but B, Ukraine's, uh, meeting Ukraine's stated ambition of joining a vibrant Europe and EU in particular? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that we are talking a lot about this internally. Um, I want to be clear that there's no specific plans yet that have been approved by our board, and I'm, I want to be very respectful of um, their, uh, their authority and so forth and so on. Um, but there are two ways that, over time, MCC possibly could get engaged in Ukraine. Um, one, uh, let, let's say sort of first steps first and second steps second. Um, if we were to get engaged with them sort of more in the near term, one could begin to think about some of the policy and reform areas that might be necessary to help them accede to the EU, uh, which everybody knows, I think, is a very important step um, as they recover uh, and change their whole relationship with Europe and the West and so forth and so on. Um, so that is one possible area. Again, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, after that, we could begin to think about, possibly about infrastructure investments, but I would want to come back to the question of value added. There are, thankfully, a lot of money going into Ukraine right now. Um, and we'd have to really think about what is the most 
um, the what is the really the value added and the distinctive feature of uh, of MCC's program relative to what others are doing? Because we wouldn't want to, you know, just sort of deploy money in an area that might be duplicative uh, with others. Um, a fundamental question that we would have to ask ourselves is how do we operate in an environment which is part of which is significantly war-torn? That's really not our remit. Um, right. So we have to really think about you know, some of the eligibility considerations mm -hmm. there. But those are sort of some of our early thoughts. It's early days. Um, as an agency, um, we are, uh, our hearts are very much with mm -hmm. all of the Ukrainian people during this sort of horrible, horrible time. We just have to think carefully about what do the steps look like. So those are some early ideas. Also, the notion of regional compacts and projects, yes. given, again, what I think we all believe Ukraine is right to pursue, membership in the right. EU and, and, um, and trade and private sector-driven growth, that would seem to be in particular a, yes. uh, a good model. Uh, also, uh, one would think the MCA experience uh, in my days as administrator at USAID, one of the last trips I took was to Eastern Europe. Right. And what was striking to me, head of state uh, in a public setting said, you know, love the work that you guys have done for us at USAID. We appreciate all of that. But he said, you don't understand. That's not what we need right now. He said, it, countries that come from particularly the old Soviet Union, uh, for them, transparency isn't the natural state of order. And so we need people to help us and to help a young generation understand how to operate transparently. That is, everything that you do is transparent at MCC. Wouldn't that be a key part of the contribution? An, an MCA would be a good way operationally to handle working there. So that's something that would be a natural part of how we would consider proceeding. Uh, Let's talk about MCC uh, looking forward over the next 20 years. Um, MCC has been remarkably nimble in meeting needs when we all saw, for example, power in Africa as a key need. MCC's compacts touched upon that topic. What do you see? You talked about it a little bit, but what do you see looking ahead? What kinds of work will MCC need to be thinking about and to be involved in? Well, I think, I think that infrastructure finance will remain a uh, sort of a, an important aspect of what we do. Um, if you just think about the absence of energy in many, many different parts of the world, um, just that fact alone is going to keep us anchored in part in energy. At the same time, you know, roads, I mean, some of the tr things that I would consider sort of the traditional aspects of what MCC has done. We're doing some, uh, some number crunching internally about how have the sectors that we've been asked to look at, how have they changed since the beginning of MCC to now? And it is beginning to change. We are getting uh, more requests to look at um, urban issues, uh, we're starting to look at our first compact that has a big component in digital. Uh, we are getting asked more and more about uh, what are the skills necessary uh, for people to get educated, to be um, successful in the marketplace that demands a whole different set of skills. 
so what, I'm, what we're seeing is, I guess I would call it a diversification of the areas that we're working in. Um, one thing that we are going to remain very faithful to is listening to what the country partners want. So we will not be imposing ideas about, you know, must do this, must do that. But I do expect that if we're having this conversation, you know, in five years' time, celebrating uh, our 25th anniversary, that we'll be looking back on what has become a, um, maybe not a radically changed set of areas, but a slowly but surely changed set of areas given uh, this, the, the concerns that are ahead. The MCC, with its uh, well-known constraints to growth analysis, looks at the barriers to private sector-driven economic growth in a country. Um, how do you get at barriers to trade? So, um, you know, trade seems to have lost its uh, popularity in the American political dialogue, but still over and over again, countries come to us looking for trade. How can MCC work in particular on enhancing commerce and trade? So we would have a role to play in what I would call the basics of this. So I'm thinking roads and ports. Um, you know, often uh, in the countries that we work in, um, you know, once you get outside of the capital, there are not a lot of roads. Um, in many of the countries you work in, there aren't, there aren't good enough ports and big enough ports. And so we can have a role to play in, in how countries can overcome that. Um, through some of our policy work, though, we can also remind countries about the importance of the rule of law, about transparency, about um, strong financial markets, and some of what I would call sort of the more important policy ingredients uh, around trade. So we, I think, have a powerful set of tools to get at both there. But it will, and then also our regional program. I mean, that is that is naturally fit to helping countries overcome. Uh, what I would call more of the sort of basics in terms of the barriers to trade. I mean, this Benin-Niger compact is going to be very interesting to see how it changes trade statistics in both countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have compacts and second compacts, and we have threshold programs. You indicated that there are some other tools or arrangements that, uh, that you're beginning to deploy. What do those look like? So it's something that we're thinking about um, for the future, which is um, we do have some existing gift authority. Should we be expanding that to encourage others to come join us, uh, particularly because most of the sectors that we work in, you know, the costs of fixing the whole sector, if you will, are significantly higher than the funding that we have. So you'd think that there would be a logic in bringing in others. Um, we're beginning to get to a point where several countries have reached the end of two compacts. Right. And while I fully understand that there's a desi an important desire not to be in a country forever, uh, there are countries that continue to have significant needs beyond the scope of the second compact. So there we can think about regional, but there may be some countries where it would make sense to add a third compact. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe, maybe with that, the sort of qualifications and characteristics of that change, given who the countries could be. So it's, it's really a question of evolving how we work, where we work, the depth in which we work, um, and in some ways, the flexibility in which we work, so that we continue to 
not to, to make sure that our tools are being deployed in the most effective way, but without losing um, the original premise of what has made us so successful since we were started. Um, I, I think something that is sometimes not recognized that when MCC engages in a second compact, there are also additional requirements of the host country. So it's not simply a repetition of the first compact. Well, what we do is, it's a great question. Um, first of all, what we do is we sort of go back to the beginning and ask again, what are the key constraints to growth? And in some countries, it is sort of an evolution of what we did in the first compact, but often not, actually. Right. And that's very interesting. Um, so often not, but we come back to that original discipline of what are the, constra the constraints to growth. The other thing we haven't talked about much is countries contributing their own money to work alongside with us. So we do have a requirement that um, depend it differs slightly by income category, but uh, and it also differs between first compact and second compact. But uh, countries are required to contribute their own money. Uh, just in April, we signed or, or skin in the game, as we like to game. put it. Uh, and it's 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 very important for the success of the program uh, because it really signifies, yes, skin in the game, but also it is a signal of their ownership of what the project is about. So we just signed a $649 million compact with Indonesia in April. Uh, we were very um, honored that Secretary Yellen signed it alongside of the finance minister from Indonesia, Sri Miliani, and Indonesia is putting in, let me get my numbers right, it's either 49 or $50 million of their own money into it. Uh, and so that speaks volumes. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, another compact that we're working on that I can't share the details of where a country is indicated to us, even though they don't need to, they are considering contributing their own funding to the compact. So um, that is, it's a, in addition to all of our sort of requirements, that requirement to have money in from the country, I think, speaks volumes. And it's very, very powerful in terms of the country's um, interest in the outcome, the interest in what happens after the compact, maintaining the assets afterwards, and so forth. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. It's been great to have you here. Uh, I guess just a couple of uh, uh, final thoughts from, from my end. As one of those who was present at the birth and, and helped to craft the MCC, uh, a, we weren't sure it was going to survive, but B, we, I occasionally hear um, points about sticking to the original limitations and the original model, and I promise you that was never, ever considered by any of us. Mm -hmm. We had an experiment and wanted to see it take off, and we've been all very fortunate and gratified under multiple administrations, Republican and Democrat, under multiple Congresses, Republican and Democrat, a changing world with a wide range of challenges popping up. The MCC has not only stayed relevant, but quite frankly, uh, surpassed expectations. And I think a big credit goes to those who have been chosen to lead the MCC. We're all very fortunate, and I certainly include you. It's been great to be with you. Thank you for your leadership, and we look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. And um, 
I want to be clear that I've only been at the agency for less than a year and a half, but the rest of the agency has been at the agency for a long time, and the credit goes to them because they've done all the heavy lifting. So well done, team. Thanks to everyone who is here. Appreciate it.